This is Africa Digest. It is 1700 hours Central African time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, where we give you news from an African perspective. Hello, my name is Spumele Lezondi. We are broadcasting to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. You can find us on frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. I'm with Joala Netulo, Husani Matebula and Mosibudi Makura. Your top stories. The Zimbabwean political crisis continues to deepen. A report says a total of 155 million children globally are still stunted. In economics, Tunisia to continue with a package of painful economic policies despite resistance from labor unions and business associations. And in sport, five-time Grand Slam champion Maria Sharapova under investigation by Indian police. First, the news with Jola Natulo. Thank you, Spumelele. Good afternoon. SADC is to immediately start its intervention on the unfolding political turmoil in Zimbabwe. The country has dominated headlines since the military seized control last week and placed President Robert Mugabe under house arrest. The conflict was triggered by Mugabe's decision to remove his deputy, Emerson Mnangagwa, from office. This has also resulted in mass protests calling for Mugabe's resignation as head of state and parliament to impeach him. Earlier, Angola, Zambia and Tanzania as well as SADC chairperson Preston Jacob Zuma met in the Angolian capital Luanda to discuss the turmoil in Zimbabwe. SADC Executive Secretary Stagomena Lawrence Tax had this to say after the meeting. The summit of the Organ Troika plus SADC chair noted with concern the unfolding political situation in the Republic of Zimbabwe and resolved that his Excellency President uh, Jacob Zuma, in his capacity as the chairperson of SADC, and uh, His Excellency Joe Manuel Lorenzo, in his capacity as the chairperson of uh, the Organ on Politics, Defense and Security Cooperation, will immediately undertake a mission to Zimbabwe. Earlier, the leader of Zimbabwe's opposition party, the MDCT, Morgan Tsongarai, asked for free and fair elections without violence. Protesters had blocked the road in front of parliament, demanding the removal of Mugabe. Tsongarai uh, addressed thousands of protesters gathered outside the Zimbabwean parliament. The liberation phase was one phase. The democratization phase is another phase. That's why some of us took up some say we are now finishing the agenda that the liberation fighters fought for, which is freedom, independence, and love for each other. Viva Zimbabwe, viva! Viva Zimbabwe, viva! Liberia's Electoral Commission has formally rejected fraud allegations lodged by two political parties over the presidential election result, setting a West African country on a course for a showdown at the Supreme Court. The National Elections Commission has held hearings to review complaints lodged on the 20 on the 23rd October uh, ruling rather by the ruling Unity Party and the opposition Liberty Party, whose candidates came second and third respectively in the October 10 election. The two parties are allowed to and allowed rather allow are allowed an appeal to the electoral body's board of commissioners although they have already publicly called on them to step down over the allegations Liberian researcher Ibrahim Al-Bakri has more well it only means that the process is still ongoing and uh, the election commission hasn't rejected the party's complaint in totality only the first stage of the hearing from the hearing officer so the parties have the right they have another opportunity to sit on appeal before the board of commissioners and they have already applied that they're going to appeal the ruling of the hearing officer so the board of commissioners have to come down with a ruling on the appeal in seven days so this means we are still in for a long haul the hearing officer dismissed the entire and said that the parties could not prove their allegations of irregular fraud. And uh, they, they also said that parties lack sufficient evidence to prove that the elections were marred by fraud on October 10th. So the entire uh, petition was dismissed. 
Police in Nigeria say at least 50 people have been killed in a suicide bomb attack in the northeastern town of Mubi. A police spokesperson says dozens others are injured or were injured rather when the attacker blew himself up at a mosque during morning prayers. The BBC's Isak Khalid reports. The mosque in Mubi town was packed with worshippers when the bomber struck. Witnesses speak of seeing dismembered bodies at the scene. Emergency officials in Adamawa state told the BBC that the death toll is likely to rise because many people were seriously wounded in the blast. Boko Haram militants have recently stepped up suicide bombings in the northeast of Nigeria after the military recaptured territories previously controlled by the group. And finally, the Russian President Vladimir Putin said the defeat of the IS militant group in Syria was both close and inevitable. He was speaking in Sochi where he met Syrian President Bashar al-Assad, who is on a visit to Russia. Dear Mr. President, I heartily welcome you to Sochi. I would like to congratulate you on the results that Syria has been achieving in fighting terrorist groups and congratulate you on the fact that Syrian people who have been going through very hard times are gradually coming to a final and inevitable defeat of the terrorists. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Thank you very much, Jolani. It's 1706 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest. Info at channelafrica.co.za. Now, Zimbabwean students studying at Fort Hare and Rhodes Universities in the Eastern Cape have expressed mixed feelings about the political turmoil in their home country. The Zimbabwean government is funding thousands of students to study at these institutions. The country has a historic relationship with Robin Mugabe, who also was a student there alongside a struggle icon. Oliver Tambo. Makaya Gomisa reports. Robert Mugabe is one of the alumni produced by the Forte University. Having graduated from the institution, he set up a fund for Zimbabwean students to study at the institution and others at Rhodes University. As pressure is mounting for him to resign, a number of Zimbabwean students have lauded the Pilikat president for funding their studies, while others say it's time for him to go. The group has educated a lot of people, so now that's a justification for the gross violation of human rights and other people who continue to suffer economically. So I think it would be not so fair to say no, we need to sympathize on that basis. I believe if we remove Mugabe, let's go for transitional government, which includes all the opposition parties, then you can see from that onwards. Or other than that, we can wait for we can wait for elections for 2018. Mm. Uh, but he felt the economy, the economy is down, everything is down, and I don't know, like, he should give other people who can actually, like, take the economy to be better and all that. It was rumored that Zimbabwean students at Rhodes and Forte will mobilize other students for a solidarity march at Rhodes University. There has been no reported solidarity march as students are writing their examinations. Forte University spokesperson Khoto Mwabi says students are currently focusing on their examinations. Um, they're still continuing to study. There are no financial challenges. Um, and generally the children are just um, happy about what is uh, happening in Zimbabwe. A lot of them do want um, the regime change that is uh, uh, on the cusp. So yeah, um, we're fine at the University of Forte. Okay. A number of Zimbabwean students say they prefer a multi-party government in Zimbabwe if Mugabe is removed. I'm Makaya Komisa in the Eastern Cape. A total of 155 million children globally are still stunted, meaning they are too short for their age. This is revealed by the new 2017 Global Nutrition Report launched today by the United Nations World Food Programme, or WFP. The Southern Africa Development Community, SEDEC, is grappling with multiple burdens of malnutrition. For more on this issue, we now joined on the line by WFP's Acting Regional Director, Lola Castro. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa. Good afternoon. How are you? Lola Castro. Yes, this is Lola Castro talking from Johannesburg. All right. Um, we seem to be having a... Hello, this is Lola Castro talking from Johannesburg. 
All right, so Lola Castro, thank you very much for joining yes. us. Good um, afternoon. Now, maybe if we can start by defining what malnutrition actually is. Yes, um, in fact, today we launched the Global Nutrition Report, which was launched globally in uh, Italy on the 4th of November. And the launch was with the Grassa Marshall Foundation Trust in South Africa and uh, the World Food Programme as representing the United Nations in this case. And uh, basically the, if the question to reply very rapidly is what is malnutrition? Malnutrition is when the, both mother and children and anybody cannot have adequate macronutrients and vitamins and adequate diet diversity and then there are some effects of it and the effects can be uh, in, different, in different manners. You can, an, an effect is like you are very thin and this is what we call wasting and and that is a huge problem but the huge problem the largest problem in the world as you said now in the introduction is to be stunted a stunted is to be short for your age but um, short for age it doesn't mean that you're short only but also your organs and your your even your brain is underdeveloped and as you say there is 155 million in the world which have these problems and in fact in Southern Africa region we have very high rates of stunting and six countries in the region has the under five children which are uh, stunted or very short for the age. We have countries like Madagascar with 49% of the children stunted and Mozambique with 43% and Malawi with 42% and that's a big problem for the for the people themselves are stunted and also for the economic development of the countries and the region. And how does one know that the child is actually stunted? Because some people might say, well, it's just a short child. Mm-hmm. There is uh, obviously measurements that are in the, done in the health centers and the hospitals and the clinics and the nutritionists can advise. But what is very interesting about the stunting is that it doesn't really start with the the physical life of the child when he's out of the mother's womb, that it starts much before. It starts at conception. And if the mother, when she's pregnant, she doesn't eat uh, adequate vitamins and micronutrients and a good diverse diet, and also when the child is born, if he or she is not breastfed for the first six months, they may have more problems of stunting. And also when the children, after six months, start start being given foods, uh, solid foods, if the foods are not the right ones and they have not adequate vitamins and they are not diverse. Like uh, we heard this morning one of our panelists saying that in, in Southern Africa the children are weaned after six months with uh, maize meal porridge or pap, which is totally inadequate because the children need also the diversity of food after the exclusive breastfeeding of the six months minimum and it's better one year and two years to breastfeed the children. So basically you can know that uh, through analysis of the uh, weight for the height for age of the child and you know if you are below the curve and that's normally a symbol of the child didn't get either in the mother or during developing adequate vitamins. And the, the important part is that we only have 23 months of life to reverse that. After 23 months of life, it, it's very difficult to reverse the trend of being short for your age. And that's why uh, we need to act rapidly, work with the, with the governments, and make sure that everybody and every population understand that a mother, a pregnant mother should eat very well, should have adequate proteins and vitamins and micronutrients, and the children, when they are born, they should be breastfed exclusively and then win correctly with a diversity, diverse diet. And this is about education as well of the women, women education and women empowerment. Um, the maize porridge that you are talking about is quite common in Africa. Are you saying that people should not eat that at all? No, uh, it, it can be eaten, but it should be eaten with a balanced diet. You need to also eat your greens, your animal and vegetable proteins if you can. There are proteins in many, the green leaves, the, the pulses. You have to eat adequate fats, not too much, adequate sugars, not too much. And a balanced diet is what it is. There is very clear 
uh, examples on how you dish, your dish should look. Your dish should have many colors and it should be composed of many types of ingredients that don't need necessarily to be expensive. The main problem these days is that people tend to eat either very rapidly or very inadequate, especially in the urban areas. We, we eat all this junk food uh, that is readily available, and we also give the children, or the children at the schools are eating chips and, and, and sweet drinks and stuff like that that really doesn't give them enough uh, adequate diet for them to grow healthy and to be the future girls and boys that will run these countries, and they will be able to be good workers, good students, and productive uh, citizens. Um, a lot of people nowadays are replacing um, the meals that would be made at home with meals that are fast and bought in stores. Um, is that an adequate meal? Can it be an adequate, adequate meal for a child? If, if uh, that meal includes uh, vegetables and includes uh, pulses and includes fats uh, in adequate quantities and carbohydrates in adequate quantities, it's okay. But normally, unfortunately, the fast meals are full of uh, sugars and full of other ingredients that are really not providing adequate diversity to the body of a growing child. And this is where the problem lies, because we are eating too fast and not a good diversity as we used to do in the past. In the past, when we all were living in rural villages and we will produce our own foods, we'll have our own vegetable gardens and we'll eat from the garden fresh and fresh and diverse. Now, unfortunately, this is not happening and due to the, to the life, um, the speed of life and the requirements of the actual urban and rural societies as well, we are, we are neglecting that. And that is reflected, in fact, in the increase of overweight. In fact, there are 2 billion adults in the world which, uh, who are obese and overweight, and we can see in Southern Africa that happening, and that's what we call the double burden. There are people that are undernourished and underweight, and there is people who are overweight. And being overweight is not that you eat better, it's that you are eating incorrectly and this is where you become overweight and obese, which is also a big risk for your health. Um, is there enough education around all of this? Uh, definitely there is not enough. There is, uh, we agreed this morning that we have to communicate better, we have to explain the things in a simple way, we have to also reach out to everybody, from the, um, the leaders who make decisions uh, to the private sector, to the civil society, to the schools, to the mothers' groups, to the communities, to pass the message that really the importance of a good diet from the pregnant mother to the young child breastfeeding to the winning child to the children who go to school, how important it is for the developing of the countries and the people. And, and that's reflected, in fact, if you want, in the in the, um, the, the huge burden to the GDP of the countries, the gross domestic product of the world suffers a 3% loss due to the undernutrition and lack of productiveness, if you want, due to the undernutrition. And uh, we have countries in the region where the losses go from 1.9% of the GDP to 16.5% of the GDP, which is amazing. The, the billions that we are losing to not putting enough attention into ensuring that nutrition is on top of our agendas. All right. Thank you very much for joining us, Lola Castro. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Good afternoon. Lola Castro is Acting Regional Director for the United Nations World Food Program. Your time is 1719 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa where we continue to give you news from an African perspective. Now, Angolan President João Lorenzo and South African President Jacob Zuma are expected to fly to Zimbabwe tomorrow following talks between regional leaders on the crisis engulfing the country. The two leaders will represent the 15-nation Southern African Development Community 
community bloc, of which their countries are the leading members. SEDEC has sought to broker an end to the instability triggered when Zimbabwe's army took over the country after President Robert Mugabe sacked his vice president and cleared the way for his wife Grace to succeed him. Joining us now from Harare is Zimbabwe analyst at the Institute for Security Studies, Derek Matijak. Hello and welcome to for jo- and thank you for joining us, Derek. Welcome. Um, now, Derek, let's start with the impeachment process that is now underway in Zimbabwe. How does that work? Uh, the way that it works is that both houses of parliament, we have an upper and a lower house, they come together and a motion will have been tabled uh, uh, to remove Mugabe as president on one of four grounds set out in the constitution. And so it's a two-stage process. The first thing that happens is that motion will be debated as to whether Mugabe should be investigated and whether a special committee which is set up to do this should investigate whether Mugabe should be removed on the particular grounds set out in the motion tabled for Parliament. Uh, So uh, at the moment, uh, both houses of Parliament have come together and they're debating whether this committee should be set up to investigate the impeachment uh, grounds. Mm. Now, there are two camps in ZANU-PF. There's the Lacoste camp, there's the G40 camp. Um, what are the chances of this process succeeding? Uh, at the moment, uh, it's looking very good. Initially, there was some doubt uh, about whether ZANU-PF would be able to raise sufficient numbers for this. It's the the current uh, membership of the House is 347 members and two-thirds majority is is required to pass the final vote on the impeachment. So that means uh, ZANU-PF would need to raise 233 votes uh, to get the impeachment process through. And because it was thought a lot of parliamentarians were absent, some of the G40 group had gone into hiding, it was thought that maybe ZANU-PF would need to rely on opposition votes to push the impeachment process through. That doesn't look like the case. There's a very good turnout, it seems, uh, at the the parliament. Well, in fact, it's not at the parliament because there are so many people in the combined houses they've had to move to a local hotel. But that's where they're sitting and there's a good turnout. At this first stage, they only need a 50% vote in order to set up that committee to investigate the grounds of impeachment. It's once that committee makes its recommendations that the parliament comes together, both houses come together, and that's where you need the two-thirds vote in order to remove Mugabe from office. Mm. Uh, Despite the fact that you're saying that they will not necessarily um, need um, opposition members, how are opposition members likely to vote, um, especially the movement for democratic change? If the opposition can see that the the vote is going to succeed, regardless of how they vote, I'm sure they will vote for the removal of Mr. Mugabe. The initial um, approach was to try and cut a deal with ZANU-PF to say, look, you need our votes, so we'll only give you our votes if you give us a place at the table in the new Munangagwa government. Uh, it looks like that they don't need those votes, so it's possible that no deal has in fact been cut with the opposition to secure the vote. Mm. Um, and what uh, is the timeline before it actually goes through this impeachment? Well, that's a question that's been hotly debated um, over the last few days in Zimbabwe. This is terra nova for the parliament. They've obviously never had to set up an impeachment committee before. So no procedures are laid down as to how the committee needs to go about investigating these grounds of impeachment. Some people think that the principles of natural justice must be followed. Um, Mr. Mugabe must be given a full hearing, a full right of reply to state his case. Um, Other people think that perhaps that's not necessary. Maybe he could make a written submission that there's no need, for example, to call witnesses or do a detailed examination. After all, this is a committee of parliament. It's not a court of law. So if the committee uh, just decides that from a brief investigation they have sufficient evidence to recommend Mr. Mugabe's removal, that process could uh, take uh, as, as little as 24 hours, and by tomorrow the committee could be reporting back to the Houses of Parliament with its recommendation. 
Uh, but it can take up to a couple of months, no? If they decided to do a, a fully-fledged investigation, it could drag out for an extended period. And obviously, Mr. Mugabe might uh, engage in delaying tactics to do that. But I suspect they're going to adopt a more summary approach and report back to uh, both Houses of Parliament very quickly, not so quickly as to make the process look deeply flawed and improper, but just enough for propriety's sake um, to make it look like they have had sufficient time to do adequate investigation to make their recommendation to the Houses of Parliament. Mm. Um, there was also another process that's taken place where the war veterans went to court to um, solidify the process that was taken by the military last week. What happened there? Do you know? I, I don't know the outcome of that. Uh, I think the application, in my view as a lawyer, was ill-advised, but that's probably a topic for another day. All right, sure. Um, and um, in terms of Mr. Mugabe himself not wanting to step down, does he have any leg to stand on? Because he already has been removed as the head of ZANU-PF. Exactly. Um, He was asked uh, or he spoke after a meeting of the war veterans in the middle of last year uh, about whether he had any plans to retire because uh, the war veterans were putting pressure on him to retire. And he said, so long as the party says that I should continue, I will continue. Uh, Basically, he then went on to say, so long as God gives him health and strength, uh, he will continue in office. So the implications of that was that if the party said they did not want him to continue, that he would step down. And on Sunday, the party very clearly and unequivocally stated that they did not want him to continue in office as state president and removed him as party president. So he now is completely isolated. He has his party against him. He's had the opposition against him for years. The war veterans are against him. The military is against him. It really is time for him to ask himself what he's still doing there. Mm. Um, and those that want to take over, is it really fresh blood? Uh, fresh blood? Not at all. Uh, Emerson Monangagwa has been part and parcel of the ZANU-PF machinery and been at Mugabe's side for the last 50 years. He does not have a good track record for good governance, for um, adhering to the principles of democracy. Just over the last year, he pushed through two very repressive and retrogressive pieces of of legislation. And that's certainly a blemish against his name and doesn't augur well for how he's going to uh, govern the country in in the immediate future. Mm. And, and, and the euphoria that we are all observing taking place on the streets um, and, and people believing that the security situation is also going to change, would it change when Mnangangwa has taken over? Uh, that, that's unlikely, as I said, because of uh, Mr. Monongagwa's lack of democratic credentials. Uh, we might get more of the same as far as governance is concerned. However, Mr. Monongagwa has been presenting himself as an economic pragmatist over the last few years. So the most likely outcome is that we have some economic reforms. Uh, Zimbabwe is teetering on the brink of an economic meltdown. It needs a a large and urgent bailout to rescue it. Uh, Hopefully the uh, international finance institutions will have sufficient confidence in the new government to to facilitate that bailout. And we'll have some sort of uh, economic reform taking place, but probably in a climate of, of fairly repressive governance. Mm. Um, and uh, there have been allegations of vote rigging in the past, um, for example, in 2008. Um, should Nangangwa lose an election, are we likely to see that changing? Are we likely to see ZANU-PF stepping aside as they are saying that this is now a new era pretty much? No, not at all. Um, it, it needs to be realized that this is not the first uh, post-independence coup in Zimbabwe. This is the second coup. The first coup took place in 2008. If you define a coup as a situation where there's military intervention to install a leader of their choice, that's precisely what happened in 2008. Only the leader of their choice at that time was Robert Mugabe, and the military intervened to prevent Morgan Shangarai from coming to power. That falls within the definition of a coup. Once again, we've seen the military intervening to install a president of their choice. 
Clearly, the military feels that they are entitled to do so. And that statement that uh, the head of the commander of the defense forces made last Monday, he said that the military will not hesitate to intervene to protect the, the revolution. And by that, they mean they will not hesitate to intervene to protect their own interests. Yes. And that means having a president of their choosing. All right, and does it then not set a precedent um, that if the military is not happy with the status quo, um, the military will then step in time and time and time again in order to either remove a precedent or uh, put in a precedent that they want? Yes, this, this is why after the, the veto coup, as we call it, of 2008, civil society and democracy activists have been calling for security sector reform so that uh, a situation is put in place where the military cannot intervene in political issues like this. None of that security sector reform Mm -hmm. took place. Mugabe was adamant that there would be no security sector reform, and this is the result of that. All right. Um, Are we ever going to see a president who was not part of the war veterans, who was not part of the liberation struggle, new blood, if you will? Well, yes, uh, I'm afraid uh, attrition through age is, is, will cause that to happen. Uh, there are only, apart from Mugabe himself, there were only two members of the cabinet who have a, a liberation war background even before this crisis began. Uh, Sidney Sikaramai and uh, Emerson Monangagwa yes. are the, the last uh, long-standing uh, ZANU-PF cadres in government. So this process of change is taking place. All right. Derek, thank you very much for joining us. Most welcome. All right. Derek uh, Matizak there is a Zimbabwe analyst. He is with the Institute for Security Studies. He's joining us there from Harare in Zimbabwe. It's now time for a news headlines. Here's Chola Netulo. Thank you, Spumelele. Making headlines, Zimbabwe officials have moved the much-anticipated vote to impeach President Robert Mugabe from the parliamentary building to the convention centre to accommodate all the MPs. Liberia's election electoral council has formally rejected fraud allegations lodged by two political parties over the presidential election result. And finally, Russian President Vladimir Putin said the defeat of the IS militant group in Syria was both close and inevitable. For Channel Africa... I'm Jolani Tulo. Attention to our listeners. From the 30th of October 2017, the first hour of Africa Digest will not be broadcast on Channel 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. The 1700 hours show will only be found on shortwave and online on www.channelafrica.co.za. Please note that this only applies to the 1700 hours Central African Time show. The 1900-hour Central African Time program will be back on all the platforms. Channel Africa, giving you an African perspective. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's international radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. Listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Nam, kwenye line ya simu, hivi sasa, najiunga moja kwa moja. Farafina. Farafina. Terre du Soleil. Está na companhia do serviço em língua portuguesa do canal África, a voz de renascença africana que transmite a partir dos seus estudos centrais de Auckland Park, cidade de Johannesburg, África do Sul. Sochitika, mu África! Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective.
It is 17.34 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa where we give you news from an African perspective. My name is Spomelele Zondi with you until 1800 hours Central African Time. Now, Sub-Saharan Africa is making progress in shrinking the gender gap in agricultural research. This is according to a new report by the International Food Policy Research Institute. The report attributes the increase is partly due to improved access to education for girls, which has resulted in more women enrolled in agricultural sciences and sciences overall. For more on this, we now joined on the line by the author of the study and head of agricultural science and technology indicators at the International Food Policy Research Institute, Ninke Baintema. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa. Hello, uh, uh, greetings from Washington, D.C. All right, so Ninke, this is great news, is it not? Yeah, it is uh, good news, um, although it's still that um, um, only one out of uh, four ag- uh, agricultural researchers in Africa are women, so there's a still a long way to go, um, and we still still see that in some countries, especially uh, like in uh, Francophone West African countries, um, the gender cap is, is still very large. But uh, in South Africa, but also in surrounding countries in Southern Africa, like Namibia, Lesotho, um, there's almost um, um, uh, gender parity, that there are almost uh, as many female researchers as there are uh, male researchers. Mm. Um, tell us about the methodology that you used. Um, now, this is a part of an, um, a, 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 a larger program uh, that we collect uh, information on agricultural research uh, investments by uh, low and middle income countries in um, in the world, uh, but we're mostly focusing on Africa. So we are actually uh, collecting uh, data from all agencies involved in agricultural research. Uh, this also includes higher education agencies and universities um, on uh, their capacities, their investments in agricultural research. So it it includes uh, for Africa uh, about seven eight hundred uh, different agencies that we survey. And um, what's the problem in Francophone West Africa? Um, it's partly it's it's culture um, more the 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 the, say the share of uh, girls uh, attending school uh, is much lower, and as a result, that trickles down also in 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 employment of women in in agriculture and agricultural research. Mm. Um, do you find that it is a sexy profession for women to get into? Um, I think overall, um, um, uh, uh, science and technology is seen by many uh, young people not as a sexy uh, occupation for for, uh, guys and for for girls. So uh, that's actually something that that, uh, uh, the the international community is addressing. Uh, Science is very important, uh, as we all know, but as a career, it's not seen as a sexy career. Mm. Um, and the report shows that when employed, women researchers are often young and less qualified than their male colleagues. This is one of the gender balance challenges that still need to be addressed, is it not? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. So what we see is we see and in, 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 uh, we have seen a, a larger uh, influx of uh, female researchers uh, in, t- in absolute terms, also in relative terms. Uh, but still, uh, many of them are, are uh, young and, and with lower degrees. Uh, and what we see is, like, especially at the decision-making level, what, but it's very important because, uh, you know, decisions uh, drive the, the direction of the research. Uh, women are, are often still um, underrepresented, but we see changes there in, in quite a number of countries as well. All right. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Now that's Ninke Baintema, author of the study and head of agricultural science and technology indicators at the International Food Policy Research Institute. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's international radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. Listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Nam, kwenye line ya simu hivi sasa najiunga moja kwa moja. Farafina. Farafina. Terre de soleil. 
Kia Makande Mvalelwa Kina Miriam Mulopo. Está na companhia do serviço em língua portuguesa do canal África, a voz de renascença africana que transmite a partir dos seus estudos centrais de Auckland Park, cidade de Johannesburg, África do Sul. Zochitika Mu África. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. All right, you're still listening to Africa Digest right here on Channel Africa, where we give you news from an African perspective. My name is Spomela Lezondi with you until 1800 hours Central African time. Our Twitter handle is Channel Africa One. Let's move to South Africa now, where the troubled power utility ESCOM yesterday made its final presentation to the National Energy Regulator of South Africa, NERSA, at the last public hearing on its proposed tariff hikes. ESCOM has made a request of a 19.9% tariff increase, saying it needs the much-criticized hike to stay afloat. Trade unions, meanwhile, have also described ASCOM's request as outrageous and an attack on the working class whose pockets will be hit the hardest. Joining us on the line for more about this is ASCOM's General Manager for Regulation, Hasha Trotlalimache. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa. Thank you very much. Now, ESCOM has outright rejected calls for its 2018-2019 tariff to be kept at the level of inflation. Remind us of the reason for this. Well, the point is is that we follow the methodology that requires us to, for an efficient uh, licensee, which is ESCOM, to recover its costs and a fair return. And that's exactly how we've made the application. And it does not correspond to a capped a CPI increase. Mm. Um, and you did this despite the fact that um, unions were complaining. Um, are you taking their view into consideration at all? Yes, of course. ESCOM has not asked for a full cost-reflective tariff. We have basically phased uh, uh, in our return on assets, which if we have to uh, raise debt, it will cost us more than at least 8%. And we have uh, agreed for this particular application to only ask for a return of, on, on assets of 2.97%. That does not even cover our interest payments. So that is one of the areas where we have phased in our application. And the other main area is that we tried for the application looking forward to uh, minimize our op- operating costs as much as possible. We have had seen savings in the whole NYPD three period, and we basically have asked for a more reasonable increase for operating costs than we than would have originally been the case if we hadn't had those savings. So those are the two areas where mainly, as as well as finding efficiencies in all our costs, for example, for coal costs and other primary energy costs. So that's the uh, the contribution that ESCOM has made in trying to uh, ease in the the tariff towards cost reflectivity. Um, what would happen should the 19.9% request not be met? Well, then we, we're going to have to reconsider what would happen. There is a likelihood that our loans will be called in if, if the investors are not happy with the situation, and that would basically burden the fiscus because all our loans are government-guaranteed. And we'll also have to think about how we're going to have to adjust our business in accordance as we have done previously, but it may or may not be possible. But obviously we wait for the decision from NASA before we decide to do that. And would that mean blackouts for the consumer? Well, obviously, you know, this is something that we, that we think that are the efficient costs and we would have to see what happens. That would be the last resort, but it's not something that we are thinking about right now. Mm. Um, and in terms of those who are saying that your 19.9% tariff increase is going to burden the consumer, what do you say to that? Well, you, you know, obviously there's different categories of consumers. The poor, for example, have been protected in, in, in previous NASA decisions, and if NASA maintains its decision, there will be a quite a significant save, uh, not savings, but a protection of the poor if they use, for example, less than 100 kilowatt hours or in that region. 
And as far as other industries are concerned, this is where, if we look more internationally, other countries, for example, Germany, provide incentives for particular intensive users, and, and we have made those proposals to NASA in our public hearings to, to think about uh, possible uh, incentives for particular industries that can prove that they, that the electricity price is basically impinging on the particular industry. So that is something that, that has been started in, in certain instances, and we think that that is the way to go for particular industries. And so you're saying it should be up to the consumer to save in order to help ESCOM? Well, not necessarily to say, but we're saying that most of our customers, as ESCOM's uh, residential customers, use very little electricity, and the price that they would see, because they do have some kind of cost subsidy, will be not as significant as, as, as uh, you know, the 19.9 uh, implies. For example, if a consumer uses approximately uh, 150 kilowatt hours of energy per month, the increase, if it's a whole 19.9%, will be about 24 runs, which is not, a, a, not an absolutely steep amount to consider. All right. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Juan. All right. Cheers. Bye-bye. That's ESCOM's General Manager for Regulation, Hesha Kutlalimache, joining us there. Well, 24 rand, that's what? A loaf and a half of bread that you will not be buying if it increases by that much. Your time is 17.46 Central African time. Here's Wissani Matebula with your economics. Thanks, Pumelele. Good evening. Oil exploration company Kane Energy is in talks with BP to sell about 30% stake in its deepwater offshore Senegal, which could be valued at around 600 million US dollars. However, Mamadou Faye, director of uh, Senegal State Oil Firm Petrosan, said uh, no formal request has yet been made by the companies. BP has declined to comment. Kane's share price rose around 5% on Tuesday. BP was up around a percent. All measures have been increasingly homing in on the waters of Senegal, as well as neighbors Mauritania and Gambia, where they suspect hundreds of millions of barrels lie. And Tunisia will continue with a package of uh, painful economic policies despite resistance uh, from labor unions and business associations to changes that will raise taxes and put thousands out of work. The North African country is under pressure from the International Monetary Fund to speed up policy changes and help its economy recover from militant attacks in 2015 that had its uh, vital tourism industry. Tunisia plans to raise value-added and add taxes and uh, lay off about 10,000 workers as part of the 2018 budget to cut its budget deficit. The government has also proposed a 1% social security tax on employees and companies. It has emerged that uh, normal employment uh, processes were not followed in the appointment of Brian Mulefe, who is the former CEO at South African Power Utility, ESCOM. Former board member Vinette Klein says the reason for the deviation from the formal requirements was because the board was of the view that Mulife was the best person to save the company. She says the first suggestion that uh, Mulife be appointed came from then-board chairperson Ben Gubani. Evidence leader Tutuzelo Vanara has questioned line uh, during the ongoing inquiry into ESCOM in Parliament. Posed a deviation. What was the reason for not following this particular or the normal process for recruiting a group chief executive. Particularly that the shareholder representative seems to be reminding the board of the process. I think it's safe to say, Advocate Venara, that having come into an organization which was so unstable and having after a few months seen the turnaround, I mean, by August of that month, we'd already started seeing the last of load shedding. This board was really convinced 
The Gauteng Consumer Affairs in South Africa is appealing to consumers to spend their money wisely during Black Friday this week. The common American tradition of extremely low prices in stores has become popular in South Africa as customers prepare for the festive. The Consumer Affairs has advised consumers to prepare for January and avoid sinking into debt during this time. Mili Felion is Director for Stakeholder Relations at Consumer Affairs. We encourage consumers don't let a Black Friday self end up with a blacklisting. Only buy what you need, not what you want. Start by drafting a budget for yourself for the festive season and try to stick to that budget. Check a chatter for American Chain Gap, uh, trendy leggings for Swedish clothing giant H&M, bright twill shorts for Germany's Chibo. These are among a growing list of clothing items being churned out under some of the world's renowned brands from factories in Ethiopia, which is aiming to rise to a position among the world's biggest garment makers. As labor, raw material costs and taxes rise in the world's dominant textiles producer China, the Horn of Africa nation is among an emerging birch that is taking advantage of rising demand for cheaper alternatives. Financial indicators now we've got the dollar at 1403 South African rands, 1041 Botswana Pula, and 1005 Zambian Guacha. Also trading at 75 pence to the British pound and 85 cents against the euro. Commodities gold $1,279, platinum $929 per fine ounce. Brent crude oil has gone up to $62.36 per barrel. That's how it's looking. Thank you very much, Usani. It is now time for Sports News with Musibudi Makura. Good evening, sports fans. I am Musibu Dimakura with the latest sports news at the Sawam. Five-time Grand Slam champion Maria Sharapova is under investigation by Indian police for cheating and criminal conspiracy after the collapse of a luxury housing project that she had endorsed. Now, the firm behind the development is alleged to have taken millions of dollars from home buyers before the project folded. Payesh Singh, a lawyer representing one of the buyers, says police have filed initial charges of cheating and con criminal conspiracy against Sharapova as part of a wide case against the firm Homestead Infrastructure Development. Now, Sharapova had travelled to India back in 2012 to launch the luxury high-rise apartment complex named Ballet by Sharapova, which prospective buyers were told will house a tennis academy, a clubhouse, as well as a helipad. Now, the project in Guragon, a city of the capital New Delhi, was supposed to be ready in 2016, but according to Singh, construction work was abandoned after builders collected millions from home buyers. On to rugby news, Australia head coach Michael Checker is facing an investigation over his comments and conduct after he reacted angrily to several key decisions that went against his side during last Saturday's 36 defeat to England in Twickenham. World Rugby referred Checker to the Autumn International's disciplinary body after the 50-year-old walked down to the touchline to protest decisions and exchange words with supporters. Australia had captain Michael Hooper and fullback Kirtley Bell yellow carded in the first half and a two of their tries disallowed. Back home, Maud Kumalo, head coach of South Africa's under-20 women's team, is confident that uh, the stranglehold Nigeria has over South African teams will not hold them back in their quest to become only the country's second women's side to take part in a World Cup after the under-17 um, generation of 2010 competed in the global showpiece in Trinidad and Tobago. Now, Basitzana will face the Falconets in the final round of qualifiers in their quest to qualify for the 2018 FIFA under under-20 Women's World Cup to be hosted in France. Basitzana will go into the final run confident after they made light work of Burundi at Dobsonville Stadium last Saturday, thumping them 5-0 to reverse the 2-0 loss they suffered in Bujumbura 
earlier this month. In order to be the best, you need to be the best. And in order to, 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 to participate in the bigger stage, you need to, to go through these uh, best teams in order to, to measure yourself. So for me, I'm very positive in a sense that we know what we are up against. The only thing we need to plan properly in an, uh, and then uh, our players understand that uh, what is at stake and we need to make sure that they understand our tactics and the, the structure that they, we want them to be in a team. So I think, um, for me, um, I think anything is possible. Well, the third qualifying round first leg match between Basitsana and the Falconets is scheduled for the weekend of the 12th and the 14th of January, with the second leg taking place on the weekend of the 26th and the 28th of January next year. And finally, the new Kenya men's national team coach, Paul Putt, has his work cut out for him, having come and at a time the national teams have been literally sliding downward. Putt has only been in office for three days, having been appointed on Saturday at the 5th Football Kenya Federation's annual general meeting in Mombasa. Putt replaced under-fire tactician Stanley Okumbi with the Sakafa Senior Challenge Cup scheduled for the 3rd of December, his first major assignment. Putt, who was USM Algiers coach in Algeria, assigned a two-year deal and becomes the first foreign coach under the current Football Kenya Federation regime. Here is Football Kenya Federation President Nick Mwenda. Mr. Paul Put is the best you can get in the business. Mr. Paul Put has been in Africa for the last 12 years, taking Gambia for the first time to the Cup of Nations, a nation of 2 million people. Ladies and gentlemen, is the top you can get in the business for the next two years. We will enjoy his services. Well, those are sports news at the Sawa. Stay tuned to Channel Africa for more news from an African perspective. All right, you still listen to Africa Digest right here on Channel Africa. It seems to be scenes of jubilation in Harare in Zimbabwe. We're still trying to get confirmation from a reliable source whether President Robert Mugabe has really resigned, as reports are saying. There is a parliamentary, the, the parliamentary speaker rather of um, Zimbabwe has confirmed that President Robert Mugabe has actually resigned and he resigns as there is a motion currently underway at the moment to try to impeach the president president of the southern african country there's there are celebrations there's jubilation in harare we are still though trying to get a reliable source that can confirm it for you this is africa digest All right, your time is 17.57 Central African time. We will leave you with that breaking story as uh, Zimbabweans are celebrating the news uh, that um, the parliamentary speaker has confirmed that President Robert Mugabe has actually resigned in Zimbabwe. We leave you with Ngomso by Ndando. Pete, wey.